So I have, uh, hang on. Um, I told you about the body without a head thing um, when we were talking about Narcissus, remember? And that Ernst Mach did this amazing self-portrait. So this is as good as I could get it. I had to, it's had to do with grabbing a screen image from Google Books and it, this never works as perfectly as it ought to, but it's almost perfect. Well, it's not almost perfect. It's good. It's good enough. It's a good enough grab. It's, it's perfectly certain sensitivity. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be, that's right. Um, so, so uh, yeah, just distribute it. Um, so we're, we're, we won't go on with the myth and narcissist today. We have to get to Virgil. Um, a couple of you have emailed me, by the way, about the papers and um, in some anxiety, especially about the um, don't do secondary, secondary research part of the paper. Um, <laughs> so um, how many people are anxious about not doing secondary research? Okay. Um, so the reason you shouldn't be doing secondary research, <laughs> I guess this is you singular, but it's also you plural. Um, the reason you shouldn't be doing secondary research is that, um, <laughs> oh yeah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> they were completely headless to you, um, bodiless too. Uh, the reason you shouldn't be doing secondary research is that these works were actually not written for um, people to read with secondary research. They were written um, for people to read or hear, in the case of Homer, um, and to respond to. And so the idea is that um, what you're doing is, is um, having a response to literature. Part of what we're doing is looking, first of all, at a, f at a work which isn't imagining in the Iliad, we're looking at a work that is largely not imagining that you have a whole lot of literary, that you need a whole lot of literary background um, to understand the Iliad. You obviously need some um, because you need to know some of the illusions. You need to know who Thamorous is um, or have someone tell you. Um, and clearly you need to know some of the myths and legends, but people know those things. Um, but Homer isn't saying, look, there were all these great writers before me and now what I'm gonna do is redo some of their scenes. What Homer was doing was saying, here's the story. You respond to it. Then everyone after Homer, including the Odyssey, that is everything after the Iliad that we're doing in this class, including the Odyssey, more or less you have read, if you're keeping up with the reading, as these quizzes indicate some of you might be, um, you have more or less read the reading that you need to read to read the later works. You followed that, right? That wasn't so hard. You read the reading that you need to read to read what you were reading after the reading that you need to read. Um, so, see, I knew I could get you. That's what I wanted. It's early, I know. Um, if you're reading Plato after reading Homer, um, then really the, the quotations from Homer that Plato and that Socrates um, uh, present um, are quotations whose context you already know. Um, there's no Homer that Socrates quotes, there's no Homer that Plato quotes or makes Socrates quote that you haven't already read and that you can't find um, by looking back at your Iliad and your Odyssey. Um, there's nothing you really need to know about Virgil's reading um, that 
as pure literature you can't find already in Homer. So it's not that you're reading um, any of these works cold except for the Iliad. The Iliad is the only um, work we've done here that we're reading entirely cold. Everything else is um, read against a background of the previous reading in this course and the previous reading in the history of Western literature. Um, so there's a background for everything else. So um, if, what you, if your paper, you know, an obvious thing to do, well, okay, so let me just say again, um, disagreeing with me is a really good thing to do. Um, I just want to insist that? on that. You don't think so? Um, you're right. A. Um, because then you will actually have something serious to say. Um, that is, you'll have a ser serious motive for saying it. Um, so if you think, you know, that um, I'm a ridiculous um, worshiper of great literature, then show that it's not great literature. Um, show that it's all an illusion. Show that it's, uh, that it's subjective or the judgment is subjective. There are plenty of things to, to say and to write about. Um, if you are, um, whether you're looking to agree or to disagree, um, one way to do that is by comparing moments in two different works that we've done. Um, the, when I say that the previous works are, provide context for the later works, part of what I mean by that is that um, it matters how a later writer is thinking about how to do a scene that a previous writer has already done, or what a better version of that scene would be. Now, I'm a little hesitant to say this because I don't want you guys to do scenes that we've looked at. Um, that is, don't, we're going to look today at Dido's silence, for example, in the underworld. Um, and so don't say, oh, well, there's Dido's silence, and then there's Ajax's silence, and um, I, too, am going to describe what we, what we did in class. If you disagree with um, where we come down on that issue, that's fine. But um, this, these papers are not, look, I did the reading and I paid attention. Um, these papers are... It's really neat how um, Virgil takes the scene in Homer um, that we haven't looked at, but that Virgil is in some strange way repeating. You know, to take an example that I think we won't look at, um, there's uh, the difference between that 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 Aeneas recounts between the way. Um, um, Pyrrhus um, treats Priam and the way his father Achilles treated Priam. Um, and that's something that uh, Aeneas says Priam himself rebukes Pyrrhus for that. Um, and comparing those two moments, I'm, I'm partly picking that because I don't think that's a great um, or obvious thing to write a paper on, but it's, but it's a place where, if you were, where when you were reading the Aeneid, you of course remembered the scene from the Iliad that Aeneas is also remembering, or that Virgil is remembering through Aeneas. So there are dozens of those. We asked, you know, we, on last class I asked you for some comparisons between the Aeneid and Homer, and you, you had lots of them to make. Um, obviously there are comparisons between Ovid and Homer, and to some extent between Ovid and Virgil. Obviously there are lots of comparisons between 
um, Plato and Homer. And one of the things that I suggested that we didn't really go over in class is why does um, Plato have Socrates quote Achilles in the underworld um, when in the parable of the cave? Um, so it's okay if you look at one scene that we've done in class um, and then see how that, you know, so that'll be a background for looking at a later scene that we've done in class. Um, but the point is, it's really, these works are written for you insofar as what you are, are human beings interested in stories, in narrative, in poetry. If you listen to music, if you go to the movies, then you're the ideal audience for these things. Um, if, you, if you've been born and you're going to die, then you're the, the ideal audience for Plato um, and for everyone else that we're doing, but um, certainly for Plato. Um, Socrates will say that, that um, what philosophy is, is um, learning how to die. Um, that's what philosophy is for, is to learn how to die. Um, not in something we read, but that, that's a famous Socratic quotation. Um, the two great accounts of philosophy that Plato gives you is that philosophy begins in wonder. Um, again, not in a work that we looked at in the Theotetus, that philosophy begins in wonder. You look at the world and you wonder, um, how did this get to be? Um, how did I get to be? How did I get to be here? And um, those questions are approaches, he says, elsewhere to the other thing that philosophy is about, which is um, telling you how to die, telling you how to deal with the fact that you're going to die, thinking through that fact. You can see that Socrates is doing that in the Apology. So um, Socrates will talk to anyone about anything. So um, the philosophy that we're doing is if you're alive, the philosophy is relevant to you. It's written for you. It's, it's published for you. Um, if you care at all about fiction, or if you care at all about poetry, then the literature part is relevant to you. You don't need any more expert knowledge than that, because these friendly translators have gone to the work of translating. Otherwise, you would need to know Greek and Latin. But you don't. You should, but you don't. Um, so that's really all the background you need. Uh, was your hand up? No. OK. Yeah. Can we do a paper sort of responding to Socrates and Plato's arguments? Um, yeah, as long as the response is not, I can't agree. Um, that is, you have to respond on their own terms. You have to take seriously what they would, how they would answer your responses. Um, what they would say. So um, it's not just that um, you know they they seem to believe in um, a poly polytheistic pantheon that we can no longer take seriously. Um, so there, um, but uh, you have to. So there's an idea which I think it's really important in all um, humanistic study. Um, it's, it's actually really important. It's, a, it's an important philosophical idea about the philosophy of language and the philosophy of communication. Um, it, the idea is the idea of the principle of charity. And the principle of charity in the philosophy of communication is um, that when someone says something to you, um, nothing that anyone says is ever entirely clear. Um, it's always possible. Um, to misinterpret what they're saying. Um, it's, and um, the Delphic Oracle is famous for producing easily misinterpretable sentences, but any sentence can be misinterpreted. The fact that I just said any sentence can be misinterpreted, I might have been talking about judicial sentences rather than, um, uh, than, than linguistic sentences. It's always possible 
um, through cleverness um, to misinterpret what someone else is saying. What the principle of charity is, is the opposite of simply trying to win an argument by making the person you're arguing against sound stupider than they really are. The principle of charity is that you really try to see things from the other person's point of view and try to understand them as saying the smartest thing that they could be saying, that they could be reasonably expected to be saying, given what they're saying. Now, I understand you guys think that we don't treat your papers very charitably, um, but in fact, we do. Um, in fact, what we try to do is figure out when you write badly, which one or two of you might. Um, what we try to do is figure out what you're trying to say um, and respond not only to your writing but also to your thinking. And the, the, um, your thinking is the only thing that's conveying your thinking to us is your writing, but we still try to figure out what your thinking is even if it's unclear in your writing. Um, and if we, if we figure you to be saying something um, good, even if you're not putting it clearly, you get credit for that. So the principle of charity in general, it's a general fact communication, is that we could never understand anyone else and we could never learn language unless we assumed that the person or people who are speaking are saying things that we would think are reasonable rather than unreasonable. Um, that we would understand what they were saying given um, the context in which they're saying it. Um, that if someone, if you go to um, a different country where you don't know the language and someone points to a book um, and says, um, Risata, um, then the principle of charity would be they're not saying, look at that moron, he thinks I'm saying book, but I'm really saying he's a moron. That that's not what that sentence means, but what that, or that word means, but what that recita really means is book. Um, that is that there's an attempt to communicate, and that's a two-way attempt. So that's a fact, that's, that's a uh, not technical, but, but um, nuts and bolts principle in the philosophy of language. In reading literature and reading philosophy, um, what you really want, especially if you're going to argue against a literary or philosophical text, what you want to do is um, see the text in as friendly a light as possible. Don't look to score points against it. Um, why take this class if you just want to score points? Um, so in debate, of course you want to score points. If you're running for political office, you want to say, you know, he was worshiping the Aqua Buddha and that's a satanic cult. Um, and, you know, I, God knows I don't want Rand Paul to win, but Jack Conway's attack ads on him are ridiculous. Um, and, uh, but that's what political debate is, is you assume the other person is saying something, is you try to paint what they're saying is stupider and meaner than it really is. Um, but what a course like this is about, and what humanities courses in general should be about, is you're trying to um, take the privileged texts, sometimes those privileged texts will be, um, you know, texts of theory which are attacking um, works of literature, um, depends what course it is. But in this course, the privileged texts, they're always privileged texts, they're what's on the syllabus, they're the required reading. In this course, the privileged texts are Homer and Virgil and Plato and Dante and so on. And what you want them to be saying is not, you don't want to score cheap shots against them. Um, the shots against them that you score should really be um, gold, gold, golden shots, gold standard shots, not cheap shots. Cheap shots are always easy. Um, but the principle of charity is, look, 
Plato is really trying to get you to think about something. Um, don't avoid thinking about it by deciding that he's saying something stupider than he is. Um, it's a cheap shot in general against philosophy to say, for example, um, and this is not an example we're doing class, but for example, um, Aristotle's view of the infinite continuity of space and time is completely demolished by quantum theory, so why would we even pay any attention to this? Um, you want to get into the mindset of the writer. And then, if you disagree, your disagreement will be a serious one and not just dismissal. So don't dismiss. Argue against is fine, but argue against something that they would recognize as their own position, not something that they would say, yeah, so what? That's not, you know, that's not relevant to what I'm saying. Make sure what you're saying is relevant to what they're saying. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. It was a longer answer than you were expecting. Yeah. So, like, wait, cheap, cheap shot, like, basically using modern knowledge that they wouldn't have and they wouldn't be. Well, that's a, that, yeah, I mean, that, that's a cheap shot, which is, um, I mean, I'm not talking about the cheap shots, which are, which are maybe a little bit more fraught. Um, but so, a cheap, is it a cheap shot against the Merchant of Venice, for example, to say that it's an anti Semitic play? Is it a cheap shot against Othello to say that it's a racist play? Um, it's argu those are arguably cheap shots. Um, un, but what would certainly not be a cheap shot against Othello, or and certainly not be a cheap shot against the Merchant of Venice, um, it might be being too nice to them, but again, my cl what I'm saying is um, err on the side of being too nice rather than too mean, um, would be saying something like, um, of course there's some anti-Semitism in the Merchant of Venice, there's no question about that, but given um, the fact that Shakespeare had never met a Jew and given the fact that the, um, that the ideology about Jews that um, in his audience and in his context and so on was so vicious, the fact that he can actually make Shylock say all these moving things um, would indicate that given his context, he's far less anti-Semitic um, than you would expect. Um, and that in a different, you know, so that would, you could still say he's anti-Semitic, but you wouldn't just say, yeah, Shakespeare was anti-Semitic because um, he was a jerk, because he's a dead white male. Um, that's a cheap shot to say, to, to say that um, he shared in the prejudices of his time. Of course he did. Um, the question is, um, which side of the spectrum was, which side of an available spectrum was he on? Um, with Othello, you could say, or with The Merchant of Venice, you could say, actually, this, this play is anti-Semitic in a very troubling way because what you can say, and this isn't a cheap shot, even though it's anti-Shakespeare or anti-Merchant of Venice, it's anti-Semitic in a very troubling way because you can tell from the play that Shakespeare knew better, but in the end, he decided that that was going to ruin things and that he would prefer to come up with an anti-Semitic happy ending than to allow the deeper knowledge that, that he had, but that he then put aside um, to affect him. And we could add, that's always how anti-Semitism or racism or homophobia works, which is you actually know someone as a human being um, and you decide this is what makes it immoral rather than simply a failure of knowledge, it becomes a failure of moral character, which is you recognize someone as human, and then you push aside that recognition. And so Shakespeare is fundamentally, I don't believe this, but I, but I would accept this as a good argument, Shakespeare is actually more anti-Semitic than his contemporaries, because they're instinctively anti-Semitic, whereas he's anti-Semitic after deep thought. 
Um, he can see that Shylock is a real person, and then he decides he's not going to allow that thought to prevent him from simply being cruel to Shylock. Um, so that's, that would be a claim that Shakespeare is anti-Semitic, that the Merchant of Venice is anti-Semitic, that it's more troublingly anti-Semitic, um, even than those who want to score a cheap shot against it would say, by saying, oh yeah, Shylock, you know, he, Shakespeare treats the Jew as a jerk. Um, that's a cheap shot, saying, look, he could have followed what he understood, but he refused, and that makes him worse than simply having a villainous Jew the way Marlowe does in The Jew of Malta, for example. Um, that would be a stronger anti-Shakespearean argument and not a cheap shot. So I, I, I give that as, a, as an illustration. Does that make sense? I don't want to give you illustrations for the reading we've done, but that would be an illustration for a kind of argument you can make against Shakespeare, which I wouldn't agree with, but where you would be reading him with a principle of charity, and the charity would end up working against him. Um, your own charity to him, your own understanding of what he was doing would end up working against him. Um, so the principle of charity doesn't mean you have to like what you're reading. It means you have to, and it doesn't mean you have to agree with what you're reading. It means you have to argue against um, the version of what someone is saying that they themselves would agree with, um, not the version of what they're saying that they wouldn't recognize. Um, so it's not so. It's so if they could answer to your paper, but that's not. Of course, that's not what I mean. And if you know that they could answer that, then that's not what you should be writing. Yeah. So just to make sure Yeah, no, slippery's fine as long as, you, as long as it couldn't be, as long as there isn't some obvious way that they could just firm it up. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, there's, there are two ways you can look at a slippery argument. And one is, this doesn't quite make sense, but we can tinker with it a little bit and then it would make sense. And presumably, um, that's how Socrates would have tinkered with it. Um, then you can't just say, gotcha, um, your argument is slippery. But if you say, look, Socrates might try to tinker with it this way, but it still doesn't work, then you're doing something right. Yeah, but engaging with them as real people, not, uh, I mean, that, yeah, in a, in a tweet. It's engage with them as real people, not as people that you can find a chink in their armor. Okay? Is that helpful? Um, so what you have, so this is, um, I mentioned this before, this is Mock's, from Mock's book on the analysis of sensation. Um, Mock was a physicist and a philosopher and a psychologist and all sorts of good things. He was um, hugely influential on Einstein. Um, and this is what he himself said, he says that the world looks um, different to me than um, uh, or um, the world appears to me in a very pe peculiar way and appears to everyone in a very peculiar way. And in particular, um, my body appears to me piecemeal and without a head. And then he says, let me do a little drawing of it. This drawing is a little bit um, deceptive because it's not giving you what the world looks like through two eyes, but only through one eye. Which eye? The left. The left. Um, and what you can see is... Um, this self-portrait, you see the very pencil that he's been um, drawing it with. 
Um, and you see his nose and the orbit of his eye and a little bit of his eyebrow and his mustache. Those are the peculiar things within it. And then outside of that, you can see the room that he's in and the divan um, or, or chaise long that he's lounging in. And you can see his books on the left and so on. Uh, the really interesting thing is if you, and you guys are young enough to do this easily, if you hold this up to your eye, do it. Ha okay. <laughs> ha, look at you guys. No. <laughs> hold it up to your eye like that and um, put your no make your nose correspond to his and kind of just l try to look like in those magic eye things towards the window and the drawing will suddenly appear in much better perspective. Um, put your nose on his nose, look, look at it through your left eye um, so that it's your left eye is looking at what his left eye is looking at. Um, you may have to hold it like a couple of inches, because I, I gave you a very large version of this, a couple of inches away from your nose. And suddenly this thing, which is totally distorted if you hold it at arm's length, um, is not distorted at all if you hold it an inch or two away from your nose. And you can, you can be brought to notice something that we almost never notice in real life. What would it be like to have a mustache? What would it be like to have a mustache? Um, what do you think, Max? Is it? Uh, this is exactly what I see uh, every, day. every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, not that landscape in the window, unfortunately, probably, but still. Um, what it'd be like to have a mustache. Um, but also what he might bring you to notice um, is not only your own headlessness, which is what um, Narcissus has to, has unfortunately overcome, um, but you might notice that your nose is actually part of your visual field. Um, it's something that we only notice as a kind of pain sometimes when we're, when we're crossing our eyes. But your nose is always in your visual field. It's just you never notice it. Um, you never noticed it. No, never mind. You never notice it. Um, and in fact, they've done very interesting studies about noses, which is that um, your nose is actually a huge part of your visual field. It's out of focus. And um, your other eye compensates. Each eye compensates for the wing of the other nose. But your nose takes up something like 20% of your visual field. And it's actually very, very important for depth perception. Um, if you, for virtual reality stuff, if you put on a goggle and you're, you're in someone else's head doing some virtual reality gaming, um, one reason that you're disoriented, there are lots of them, but one thing that's disorienting about it is a thing that we do automatically, which is to use our noses as reference points when we're seeing, um, is gone with a virtual reality goggle. Um, and really, really high-level virtual reality. There's psych experiments that, that are about this. Really high-level virtual reality um, is going to essentially have to model a nose which, is, which has the same dimensions as your nose, but a virtual nose, for it to work, for it to feel realistic. Um, if you put on goggles that show you exactly what you're seeing, but without your nose, that is the cameras are right in front of the goggles, so you're seeing exactly what you would be seeing, but no nose in the visual field, you'll be disoriented. Even if it looks exactly real, and even though you don't notice your nose, you'll be totally, not totally, but mildly disoriented. Um, we use our noses to, um, uh, to calculate space. 
Um, this was a discovery, this was discovered like 25 or 30 years ago, and it's a really interesting fact. But Mach is already seeing that. What he's pointing out in this is that the, that the idea that you can simply see that the visual field is just what out, what's outside of you is false. The visual field also includes um, the, the location of your eyes within your face, and that also brings out how weirdly headless we are if we think about it, which we don't like thinking about that much. Julian. Um, so if someone were to get a nose job, would they need to get a whole new orientation? Well, you know, I've wondered about that. Um, I mean, it is something that occurs, you know, between childhood when you don't have any cartilage in the bridge of your nose and noses are very small. It's at puberty that your nose, your adult nose really gets established. Um, so I don't know. Um, I think probably you get used to it fast. People get their noses broken. Um, get used to it fast. It's, uh, we have a lot of plasticity in our brains, but I think it's disorienting for a little while. Um, you know, not, as I say, not majorly disorienting, but a little bit disorienting for a little while. Um, they actually did this with baseball players. Um, the first studies that showed the importance of the nose was um, really good batters if they were given goggles which mimic their noses perfectly, hit almost as well even with these goggles on, um, they could hit almost as well. But if the goggles didn't show them their nose or showed them someone else's nose, um, they, these are real baseballs they were hitting, um, but they were looking at them through goggles. Um, if the goggles didn't show them their noses or showed them someone else's noses, their hitting plummeted. Um, they found it much, much harder to hit a baseball. And they had no idea why. Um, because you're looking at the baseball in the pitcher, you're not looking at your nose, but it turns out your nose matters to hitting a baseball. Um, and um, that's an interesting fact. Um, all right. You don't think it's interesting? You can't. Right. So, so therefore a good strategy in baseball is cutting off your opponent's nose. Yes, yes. A good strategy in a lot of different things is cutting off your opponent's nose to spite her face. Yeah. Do they do any research about like whether different shapes and sizes of noses make you more oriented? Probably, but I don't know about it. Um, I suspect it's not that big a deal because it's just you just need some reference point, and um, as long as the reference point is constant, it shouldn't matter that much. Um, you know, there are probably advantages and disadvantages to having a large nose. The advantage being you get more accuracy. The disadvantage that some of your more of your visual field is blocked. Um, so, I, so I'm sure it goes both ways, but that I don't know about. Um, okay, um, back to the Aeneid. How are, what are we thinking about it now? How are you liking it? I have a yes. Oh, I thought you. Yeah. No, it's so disorientating because I wasn't expecting it. Like it's told more from like a narrator's point. I'm reading it and it just tells from like the character's point, and then it says you. Yeah, I don't think the you is the narrator, but the you is um, the in a way the you is the, the you is the audience. That is, and look now what happens. For example, is is one of the things that um, one one gets frequently um, in English. That will tend to be in the we, we actually do have a version of that in English that we don't notice the way we don't notice our own noses, um, which is uh, behold a wonder um, when suddenly behold a wonder. Um, there were ghosts surrounding him everywhere. And that behold is the second person imperative. Um, but we just don't notice it. Or, you know, even, even low. Um, in French, it's voila. 
um, which is also, some of you know, a second-person imperative. See there um, is what voila means. But, we, but it, we don't register it that way. So probably it's, we're registering it more than a Latin audience would. Um, but it does give a sense of immediacy to the audience. And the, the initial audience of this are the descendants of the people that, um, that Virgil is talking about. That is, here's how we got to, to this place. Um, but you're right, it's, it's a translator's choice how far to make that um, prominent. And it may be that Fagel's made it more prominent. I mean, I, he certainly makes it more prominent than most translators do. Um, but yeah, good question. Um, yeah? I felt that this was more satisfying than the Iliad. Really? Go on. It's pinnacle and its climax, and everything that we're waiting for comes at the end, and then it ends. Uh huh. Like, I mean, oh, so you finished like, it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. You couldn't put it down. Okay, yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. But I think that it was a little more palatable than, and it also had a lot less lists in it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it does have funeral games, though. Yeah, yeah. That was the only part that I really felt was, like, kind of. That was nothing compared to the bonus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was the funeral games and, like, when. They always do a catalog of people killing people. Yeah. Right before they get killed. But I mean, I thought it was a lot more satisfying. All right, neat, good. Well, yeah. I, I think we have to remember that there are a few things. First, Virgil is basically working a different medium than Homer is. Virgil is actually writing all this down, so he doesn't need to do all this repetition while well, he's thinking of something else to say. And also, um, it's. I, I'm not entirely sure why this is, but it seems to be written in a way that's a lot more palatable to modern on, audiences, like she says, by virtue of we're a lot more familiar with with the sequential nature of the story and like how one thing happens after the other, and there are story arcs that we can track and see, okay, this causes this, causes this, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, part, look, one difference is, that, I mean, just to pick up on that, is that the Iliad and the Odyssey are both stories about stuff that happened uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far away, or maybe not that far, but at least a long time ago. Um, neither of them is a story about how we got to where we are today, whereas the Aeneid has two long prophetic sequences which bring us down to what for Virgil is the present day. Um, there's nothing in Homer... Um, which refers to his contemporaries. Um, there's plenty of reference in the Aeneid to Augustus and to Julius Caesar. Um, so, and that reference to Augustus and to Julius is reference, that is, you get prophecy in the Aeneid that goes forward 700 years. Um, the events of the Aeneid take place officially about 700 years before the writing of the Aeneid. That's how long ago Virgil thought these events were. Um, and, and Zeus and um, Anchises prophesy what's going to happen 700 years later um, with the coming of Julius and Augustus Caesar. That is, that Julius is named after whom? Ultimately, Eulus. Yeah. And Eulus is named after? Ilium, which is Troy. So the, so the whole idea is Julius Caesar gets his name, which isn't true, but Julius Caesar ultimately gets his name from Ilium, and he is the culmination or the beginning of the culmination of the great new kingdom that Augustus is now the leader of, 
um, which derives from, which is the successor kingdom to Troy. Um, so there's a way in which it's very modern, which you guys are saying, um, and part of um, what makes it modern is that it refers to, I mean modern, by which I mean first century BCE, a huge urban culture with a lot of technology, unlike the, um, the pastoral and agricultural world that Homer is writing in and for. Um, and so it's very modern, and part of what makes it modern is that it is that it refers to the contemporary world. It refers to the modern world and isn't simply set in an ancient world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Virgil also doesn't seem like one of the things about the Iliad. I think is why we have a whole bunch of lists and stuff is because it. It, it, it's also, it was also a way of keeping track of history, right? Mm -hmm. So the lists are, this is, it, it is basically to pass down to previous generations, whereas Virgil's not really trying to do that. Right. Um, what he's trying to do is, is to um, give an account of the rightness of how things are at present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dana, was your hand up? No. Julian. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, was, uh, I was really interested in how uh, this is becoming much more and more Nice. Um, good. The what I wanted to read you what Dr. Johnson, the greatest of um, English critics, um, says about the scene which we talked about before of Dido's silence. So, what does that just um, since I alerted it to alerted you to it already in um, the Odyssey? What's let Let's just in general. Um, talk about what you think about um, Virgil's treatment of the descent into the underworld with Homer's, compared to Homer's. Yeah. Well, it's a, it reminded me more of Inferno. Like, you see different areas of Hades, and it's more of a journey looking at things, not just talking to people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so partly the, there's a tour there. Whereas in um, Homer, it's Odysseus goes into the underworld, and that's where he is. And we don't get, we, we see crowds of people in the underworld, but we don't see landscape. Um, all we know of it is that it's the underworld. Whereas in Virgil, yeah, what, um, what sorts of things do we see in, in Virgil? So just say more about that. Um, well, we see the fields. The mm -hmm. Elysian, Elysian fields. You know what the Champs Elysees is in Paris? Literally, it's the Elysian fields. That's what that's what the what it means. The fields Elysian Champs Elysees. Champ as in campus, which means field, in Latin. What? Yes, it's <laughs> such a cool street. It's why don't more people know about it? <laughs> why aren't there more movies set there? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Okay. Go on. Why is there another McDonald's on it? 
Yes, why isn't there? It would be such a good place for another McDonald's. And if only they put an arch at the end. Or two arches, golden arches. <laughs> maybe a few museums at the other end? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> Alice? Um, it would be great. Um, all right. <laughs> maybe a tower that you could look down across the river at it from? No. Nah. No, nah, it wouldn't work. It would never work. Um, the Eiffel Tower, you know, was supposed to be temporary when it was put yeah. up. Yeah. It was also it. yellow. It was yellow? Really? God. <laughs> no wonder they needed it. <laughs> really? And whereas the Golden Gate Bridge is red. Go figure. <laughs> there were Russian subs like stationed outside the Golden Gate Bridge for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. They're American subs stationed in all the Russian ports. Yeah, but if American subs like attack Russia, I'm less immediately scared. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, you, you'd have about another 20 minutes. It's yeah. true. <laughs> so actually, you'd have, more time to be, you'd have more time to be terrified. Yes. <laughs> Go on. What else? Um, I guess there were also crowds kind of near the river, and I think it might have been in the river, too. Yeah. I was a little confused by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's less, you know, laid out than the Inferno. But yeah. it's, you know, there's definitely different crowds of people depending on how they died. So how many people have read the Inferno or any of it? Because um, we'll be doing it soon. Um, so just, just so you know what happened, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. In the Inferno, um, what Dante does is he has Virgil essentially, um, he does an analogy. Um, or he has a structural analogy, um, which is that what the Sibyl is to Aeneas, that is the guide through the underworld, um, Virgil is to Dante in the Inferno. Virgil leads Dante through an underworld in a lot of ways like the underworld in the Aeneid. Um, And they meet and talk to people in the underworld in similar ways. The theology is very different, and in particular, there is no reincarnation in Dante. Um, But the, um, the idea of being guided by one who knows through this underworld and seeing strange and unexpected sights there and doing a tour of hell um, that's what that's um, what the inferno is about, and what you will see is that the one um, when I say there's no reincarnation, um, the nevertheless there is a major um, parallel in the idea of descent and reascent. That is, in the same way that Aeneas goes into the underworld and comes back, so too does Dante go into the underworld and come back in the Divine Comedy. Just so you know, although we don't find this out until Purgatorio, so this is spoiler alert, the name of the character, I mean, everyone knows this, but you really shouldn't know it till you get to Purgatorio, but you know it already. The name of the character who goes into the underworld um, in Dante and who goes into the afterlife and tours the three regions of the afterlife, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, is Dante. The speaker of that poem is Dante. It's not an anonymous speaker who's telling his story. It's Dante himself who gets named and is a little bit embarrassed about the fact that someone calls him by name. And then he says to the audience, "Um, I didn't want to say that it was me, Dante, who actually did this. It was fine for me if you didn't know who the narrator of this poem by Dante is. 
people do write narrative poems where the speaker is not the author, um, but in this case it actually was me, um, Dante. And um, in order to be accurate, I have to quote accurately what, what she said to me, and she called me Dante, um, because that was my name. So Dante claims to be, have gone into the afterlife himself and to return, which makes him, gives him one aspect of, of um, Aeneas, that is, a person who goes into the afterlife, sees what it's like, and returns to this life. Um, and is guided in that journey by a figure like the Sybil. In Dante's case, that figure is Virgil. Uh, ben, was your hand up? Yeah, um, I, mean, I was going to use this as a saying like that. Okay, good. That All would right. be good. Um, so, I mean, you know, I was thinking about how Dante, uh, for, for Dante, Virgil is the best, um, best great poet. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not caught off right now. I'm behind. So maybe, like, as I move on, I'll find what makes it so amazing. But right now, I mean, I'm not I'm sort of a little bit about it. You know, I, I don't understand. Good. Yeah, why? Why is this deemed such a great work? So, how far? Where are you? I mean, um, I'm on like page 108. It's only book three. Yeah. All right. So it's. Stylistically, so that, let me just say a little bit about that. Stylistically, it's a, it's very different. Even though you were noticing, or you were you were noticing poor Samantha, um, the fact that Homer also sometimes uses the second person, and he does especially when he's talking about the swineherd Eumaeus. Um, he's always saying, "But you, Eumaeus, you um, did the right thing um, by Odysseus." Um, even though there's there there's a lot of stylistic similarity, one one of which is that Virgil chose to write in Homer's meter, that is dactylic hexameter, um, which is not as standard, and before Virgil, really wasn't as standard um, a Roman or a Latin meter as it is a Greek meter. Um, it's not. It's it, it's certainly frequent, but. Um, but Virgil explicitly chose to write in that meter. One difference I hope everyone noticed is that there's a whole lot more variety of tone in Virgil than in Homer. That is, when Virgil does, when Homer does battles, um, you couldn't tell, let's say, I mean, this is going to be a weird, this is an impossible thing to say, but you couldn't really tell from the tone of the style that violence is occurring, um, the tone is always, a, there's always a kind of gravity and steadiness in Homer's tone, which Lattimore really picks up. That is, um, and then the sharp shield went um, through the liver and unstrung him, and um, the mists of death um, closed over him. You never have suddenly, shock, death, which is the kind of thing you'll frequently get. I mean, that's an exaggeration, Thank but you'll you. frequently get that. Yeah, in, in Virgil. That is, Virgil's, um, Virgil is known, um, and this is harder to capture in English, although Tennyson does a good job of it. Virgil is known for his surface style um, in a way that Homer isn't. That's one reason that Virgil is actually harder to translate than Homer, um, because there, there's um, uh, quickening language, slowing language, um, increase and decrease in alliteration, all the things that you learn when you take a poetry class, a basic poetry class in English, um, 
those are things that Virgil is extraordinarily good at stylistically. So if you just think of the storm scene, I, I was hoping that was um, the first place you would notice it in book one. Um, once that storm starts blowing up in book one, there's a lot of very rapid, powerful, violent description of what that storm is like. Um, in Homer, you don't get that kind of description of storms. What you get is, and then the winds blew and the ships were um, heading over the wine dark sea before the winds, and Odysseus attempted to um, steer the ship that was on the wine dark sea, and then Odysseus said, um, Odysseus um, said, which course of action shall I pursue? And in his heart, he thought of two courses of action. And one was to sail the ship into the wind, and the other was to let the wind carry the ship away from it. And he looked, and eventually he thought this was the better course, that he would sail the ship into the wind. But if the wind was still too strong, then the ship could turn around, and he would sail against the wind. There's nothing like that in Virgil. In Virgil, it's. Aeneas desperately tried to turn the ship around, but the wind blew it, and, and um, he saw the bottom of the sea as the waves came up, and, um, and the ship, ship broke in two. That's the kind of thing you get Aeneas. Or if you think of the, the, um, uh, the um, what do you want to call it, the dropping of Palinaris, um, Virgil's tone there, where Palinaris is trying to stay awake, and um, he's being put to sleep. Even though it's a very intense moment, we know what's going to happen. He's the person who's going to die so that everyone else can live. Um, Palinaris is. We know what's going to happen, but even so, the tone gets more and more sleepy. And I think Fagels captures that well. Um, Palinaris is desperately trying to stay awake, and he just can't. And then he falls into the waves. Um, yeah? Um, I noticed line where it's different between Homer and Virgil and how they write. And Virgil, when they're doing funeral games and they end, uh, which god was it? One of the gods comes down and pretends to be one of the ladies of Troy, and mm -hmm. they say, no, that's not you, because she was sick and I was just with her, and they call the god out on it. Right. It's so bizarre, because in Homer, it's like, yeah. oh, I know this is a god, and it's clearly not who I think it is, but whatever, it's still yeah. the person. And then with Virgil, it's like, no, screw you. Like, I know that you're not the real person. She's sick and practically dying in her room. In Virgil, yeah. a, lot, a yeah. lot more characters seem to kind of be savvy about the fact that the gods are really jerks. Yep. Yeah. Like, whereas in Homer, it's like, yeah, they're jerks, but you know, they can be helpful, whatever. Yeah. Well, it, a way you could put it, I mean, Aeneas is always called pious Aeneas. So, you know, one thing that you get in Homer that we talked about are those epithets. That, that is, you know, it's blameless um, Alexandros and swift footed Achilles and so on. There's not that much of that in Virgil. Um, and the reason there isn't that much of it, as some of you have already said, said, is because this isn't oral poetry. And he can work out. He has time to work out on paper um, different ways of putting things. He doesn't, he's not constantly improvising. This isn't a jam. This is um, a, a well-rehearsed and well-refined piece of writing. Um, but what that does is it makes the particular um, epithets that do usually go with characters. There are not many of them, but when they're there, they're much more important, you could say, than in Homer. And so the thing about Aeneas is his piety, and the thing about Achates is his faithfulness. Um, those are the two great 
um, adjective noun combinations in the Aeneid. It's pious Aeneas and faithful Achates. Um, and those are, th those are really well um, remembered in Western culture, well remembered um, uh, descriptions of Aeneas and Achates. Um, people will say, oh yes, um, Dr. Um, James Boswell was his Fides Achates. It's, they're, they're, they're almost proverbial um, uh, phrases. Um, so again, that's, that's um, uh, important because what it means is that there's a lot more shift in character in Virgil than in Homer. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a plus or a minus, but it's what Virgil is trying to do that you don't get in Homer. There's a lot more self-conflict in Virgil than there is in Homer. Dido is extremely conflicted about falling in love with Aeneas, and she needs Anna to tell her it's okay. Um, she doesn't want to fall in love with him, but how is she going to resist um, Cupid how, or Eros? How is she going to resist Aeneas himself? How is she going to resist Aphrodite? Um, nevertheless, she's conflicted about it. Aeneas is conflicted about leaving, um, but it's the right thing to do. Hector is not conflicted about leaving Andromache and Astyanax to go back to battle where he's going to get killed. Homer wants us to feel conflicted about it, and we do, but he doesn't make Hector conflicted about it. Hector knows it's the right thing to do, and he does it, and he loves his wife, and he loves his child, but he's not saying, oh no, I have to go to battle where I may die. What he's saying is, if I die, I die. That's that's the breaks. For Aeneas, it's all hard, and that hardness is psychological. And you'll see at the very end, um, something that, that you see, um, I guess it's in book three. Um, this is a, this is, you guys brought this up um, um, Tuesday, which is the Cyclops um, uh, revisited moment, is, and I mentioned this before, is that we see supplication from Aeneas's point of view. Or there are three scenes, you could say, of supplication to the Trojans um, that, are, that Virgil wants to put into juxtaposition with each other. Um, the first scene of supplication to the Trojans is Sinon. Who is he? Aeneas tells his story. Right, the Greek soldier who convinces the soldiers to bring the Trojans to bring the horse in, and says, "You can kill me, but at least those those dastardly Greeks won't be doing it to me." Um, Dante puts him way, way down in hell um, as one of the worst people in hell, um, and thereby agreeing with Aeneas and Virgil about him. Doesn't he also put Ulysses pretty far down into hell? Yes, he does. But Ulysses is. Um, one of the things that Dante does, I and mean, we'll talk about this a lot, but one of the amazing things about Dante is, is his disagreement, his own moral, the, the places where his moral judgment is different from God's. Um, and Ulysses is still great, even though in hell, in Dante, where Sinon is, um, deserves to be where he is um, as one of the great traitors. Um, the, the lowest circles of hell are reserved for traitors. Um, for Dante, that's the worst thing you can do is betray another person. Um, and Sinon is way down there as a traitor. Um, so, but he's a supplicant, and the Trojans treat him well. 
Um, then they come to the land of Polyphemus and they see a wild man on the beach. Who's that? Yeah, he's someone that Odysseus left behind. Um, and how long's it been? <coughs> we actually find out how long ago Odysseus was there. It's always useful to to look at the places where where Virgil is describing um, moments from the Odyssey. Um, and so it, it's three months. So they actually get there three months after Odysseus has left. And he supplicates them also and despite what happened with Sinon, they feel sorry for him, and they take him in. Um, the last scene in the Aeneid is a scene of supplication. Um, and in all three cases, Aeneas is describing um, the, um, or Aeneas Virgil is describing the experience of the person being supplicated rather than the experience of the supplicator, and describes different reactions in those scenes of supplication. Um, he's really interested in, um, in those moments of psychological conflict. Now, it's not that Homer doesn't do it, but really he only does it in Achilles. Achilles is the only really conflicted person in Homer. Um, and it's as though what Virgil is doing is, is picking that up from Homer, um, that idea of, con of genuine conflict of deciding um, if Priam were to come here, I would kill him, and then seeing Priam and saying, no, he reminds me of my father. Um, that those moments in Homer, that's what Virgil really, it pushes much, much more, I don't want to say farther, but they're, they're, they're ubiquitous in Virgil um, in a way that they aren't in Homer. And his style picks that up. That is what style itself is about. Um, what variety of style is about is the idea that moods change in storytelling. Homer, you never feel, and, and what people say about Homer um, is that he was above his story. They say that as praise. That is that Homer had, this is, you, you'll find this being said throughout, throughout the history of literary criticism, that Homer has an extraordinary, di extraordinarily dispassionate way of telling his story. Um, he himself does not get all wrapped up in his own story, but he tells it with an, an, uh, with an achieved dispassionateness, which is amazing. Virgil is not a dispassionate storyteller, and that's another huge difference between them. And you can see that Virgil isn't dispassionate through the change, through the variety, through the shifting of style. And shifting in variety of style means that his attitude towards the whole narrative is changing moment by moment as he thinks about first a happy moment, then a sad moment, then an intense moment, and so on. Um, he himself is expressing, or his style is expressing emotion in a way that Homer's style doesn't express emotion. Yeah. Actually, reading this, it seems to me that Virgil might have kind of invented the third person limited. Go like, on. Like the, 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 the situation where you are, you're, you're, you're getting narrated to, but the narrator is only giving you the a certain character's perspective and a certain character's emotion. So you can see inside the character's head, but you can only really see what the character sees. Mm -hmm. And Virgil doesn't go with that all the time, but he shifts into it pretty frequently. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and especially with someone like Dido. Mm -hmm. But that, um, I, I think that's probably what 
one of the most influential things about this because that's probably the most common mode of narration nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly um, very common in in uh, post eighteen hundred novels. Um, so yeah, and Virgil is really good at that. And you know, there there's just a whole lot of things that are standard. You're quite right. There are a whole lot of things in Virgil that are standard literary devices now that we haven't seen before. Um, I'm not. I don't want to say with confidence that he invented them out of whole cloth, but he certainly uses a whole gamut of different narrative techniques <coughs> and descriptive techniques and so on that you just don't get in Homer. Um, for better or for worse, um, Homer does what he does um, absolutely perfectly. But take, let, look, let's look at the example. I mean, there, we should look at some of the most amazing um, passages in Virgil, and I, I just need to draw your attention to them. So one of them, um, which uh, um, there is no good translation of, but you should just know the, the Latin um, phrase, is when um, Aeneas and his men are looking at the depictions in Carthage of the Trojan War. Um, and um, this is in book one. Um, uh, this is page 63. Um, sorry, page 62. Book one, line 542 of the Fagel's translation. Um, does, is anyone using a different translation? Um, so in, in the Latin, it's roughly speaking line 445. So if that gives you... Yes. Yeah. Okay. So here in this grove, a strange sight met his eyes and calmed his fears for the first time. Here for the first time, Aeneas dared to hope he had found some haven for all his heart straits, to trust in better days. For awaiting the queen beneath the great temple now, exploring its features one by one, amazed at it all, the city's splendor, the work of rival workers' hands, and the vast scale of their labors... Um, the irony here, just so you know, is that this is about the building of Carthage, uh, the city that Rome is going to destroy um, and has destroyed when the Aeneid is written. Um, the, the, the Punic Wars end in the destruction of Carthage and the salting of its land so that nothing will ever grow there again. Um, and um, so here we see the beginning of what Homer's audience knew um, the end of. This would be like... Um, a novel set in New York in the late 60s talking about the amazing World Trade Center that was going up. Um, so uh, he sees the, the city's splendor, the work of rival workers' hands, and the vast scale of their labors. All at once he sees spread out from first to last the battles fought at Troy, the fame of the Trojan War now known throughout the world. Atreus' son and Priam, Achilles' savage to both at once, Aeneas came to a halt and wept and this is one of a couple of places where he weeps. Um, what does this uh, parallel in the Odyssey? Aeneas is weeping here. Odysseus. When? Um, when he's asleep. When the bard is here. Yeah, when Demodocus is telling the story of the Trojan War. So Odysseus hears his own story and the story of the war, and then he weeps. He doesn't weep when it's happening. He weeps afterwards. And the same with, uh, with Aeneas. There is the story. And then Aeneas came to a halt and wept and 
Oh, Achates, he cried, is there anywhere, any place on earth not filled with our ordeals? There's Priam, look, even here merit will have its true reward. Even here the world is a world of tears and the burdens of mortality touch the heart. Dismiss your fears, trust me, this fame of ours will offer us some haven. So what's your translation of that? Of, um, from, from there's Priam, look. Okay, so um, the tears of the ages is what you have. Here, um, Fagels has the world is a world of tears. Does anyone else have a different translation? What's yours? Um, the whole thing. No, just the part about tears. Um, they, weep here. they weep here. And who's the they? Um, yeah, no, it's a very hard, it's, it's very hard to translate this. Um, but the Latin phrase, which is one of those Latin phrases you should know, is sunt lacrimae rerum. Um, that is, there are tears of things. Um, that's the Latin, literally translated. It's hard to contextualize it. But um, that's one of those, Virgil was a very, um, let me put it this way, because I think this is the best way to read Virgil. Virgil is a very melancholy poet, and um, that melancholy is framed by the story. That is, that Virgil, who had made his name writing the Georgics and Eclogues, that is, writing, writing in a much shorter form, um, what he's doing in that form is, um, say, is, is saying often very melancholy things. The Aeneid is about a narrative which allows for these highly melancholy moments. And that phrase, just simply the statement, there are tears of things. That is, that you look at the world and the world itself is sad. Fagel translates that as the world is a world of tears. Um, which translation do you have? Lombardo, who's a good translator, also has a, the tears of the ages. It's simply the world weeps, but by the world, it's not human. It's not the world of people. It's it's a sad world. If you look at the world, you look at a world of things that weep. Things themselves have tears. Things themselves are actually sad. It's not we who are sad. It's the world itself that's sad. Um, that's a typical moment, typical but famous, spectacular leading moment of Virgilian melancholy. Um, and, and I really wanted to draw your attention to that. Um, later on, let's just um, go to, we'll, we'll pick up from here on Tuesday. We have one more book, one more day, excuse me, on this book. Um, but um, another um, moment, I actually tweeted this when the miners were rescued. Um, is uh, what the Sybil says um, about going down to um, the underworld. This is page 186, or book 6, line 148, which is probably about book 6, line 120. It is line 125, I remember. Um, book 6, line 125 in the Latin. So... Um, he wants to go, he, he 
asks the Sybil to tell him how to go down to the underworld, the way Hercules has done it, and Orpheus and, um, and Theseus have done it. So he prayed, grasping the altar, while the Sybil gave her answer, and here's her answer, born of the blood of gods and Chises, son, man of Troy, the descent to the underworld is easy. Night and day the gates of shadowy death stand open wide. But to retrace your steps, to climb back to the upper air, there the struggle, there the labor lies. So that's a very, those three lines are very, very famous. It's, yeah. Oh, it's just, um, it's almost like he's um, putting like, the dead and the living same yes. Because it's like, yeah, people die all the time and go down the yeah. and It doesn't really matter if you're going down dead or alive. Once you're down there, everyone's the same, and it's just as hard to get back out. Yeah, exactly. And But what he said is, tell me how I can go to the underworld. And she shakes her head and says, that's not the, tr that's not the hard part. Um, all, it's always easy. You can do it at any moment. The gates are everywhere. It's coming back. So it's in Latin, it's facile descensus. Awareness, Avernus. That's the that's the famous Latin phrase. Easy, the descent to Avernus, and then the other is but to return to climb back to the upper air. Um, it's revocare ad ad auras, and then the famous line is um, hoc labor hic opus est. This is labor. This is a work, and the word the word there opus. Both labor and opus mean work. Opus is the same thing as a literary work. That is, um, then you will have done something like what a literary work does in achieving immortality. That would be a work for the ages. Um, so it's that's a work. That's labor coming back. That's a work um, where where work has some of the the modern English um, uh, feel of uh, written work. Um, opera, as you probably know, is the plural of work. It's um, um, someone's opera means their complete works. And when you talk about opera, you're actually talking about certain kinds of musical works. Um, so that's a work. It's the return from the underworld. And then you get the amazing description of the underworld, which we'll start with on um, Tuesday. It's all this work in chapter 1, 4, and 10. Say that again. Well, of course, we have 